I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and board-certified psychiatrist, Suvrat Bhargavi, MD. His new book is A Moment of Insight, Universal Lessons Learned from a Psychiatrist's Couch. It's difficult for Americans to cope with our emotions after a mass shooting and take action. As the motivations for violence can be difficult to pinpoint, it's also frustrating to link the cause of mass shootings to a mental health issue. This approach just worsens the stigma. Other factors like white supremacy and potentially our president's rhetoric can play a role, too. Sufret Bargavi, M.D., also known as Dr. B, offers recommendations for changing the conversation around gun violence. And as a renowned and respected educator, speaker, and board-certified psychiatrist, brings relatable expertise to patients. He completed his residency training and specialty fellowship at Duke University and is a regular featured expert on money and CNN.com. Welcome to the show, Dr. B. Nice to have you on this morning. I really, really appreciate your having me on, Catherine. I, I'm okay. excited to share some insights with you and your listeners. Well, we need a lot of insights, obviously. A lot has happened in this past week in terms of gun violence. So yeah. we're going to obviously start with that because we want to have the conversation. And as I mentioned in your intro, you're talking about we need to change the conversation around gun violence. Are we talking about changing the conversations in Congress, with Senate, or changing the conversations with us, the general public? And... This, I guess, two parts of the question. And if we do, then what's going to happen? Are, are things going to change? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, obviously, this past few days have been really, really difficult. And, and you know, when I talk about having a conversation, I, I think I mean, on every level possible, we need to have a conversation that moves us forward. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of the talking points that you hear are the same old, same old. And I feel like we, we have to kind of start moving that conversation forward. And I think that means in every venue. So I know within my practice, um, you know, since these terrible things have been happening, I hear more and more about this within the uh, the safety of my office and in context of a session. But I think we need to be able to talk to, you know, our, our circles, our friends, our, um, and then we need to take it to a much bigger space as well. To, to me, one of the very first things that we, we have to do when we talk about something is create an environment where it's okay to, to simply talk, to simply express emotions. And, and I feel like we don't, always do that. And, and I think we do just enough, even when you ask someone how they're doing. I don't know that we really give them the time or the space or, or the non-judgmental um, point of view to be able to just really tell you how they're feeling. And we're all yeah, feeling we talk, so many things I right think now. non-judgmental, that, that's one of the key words, a non-judgmental point yeah. of view. Because when we start talking about gun violence, it doesn't get non-judgmental. It gets very judgmental as any conversation that I have. If I'm talking about my feelings about gun violence and somebody else has different feelings. So, you know, sometimes we have right. to stop the conversation. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree. And, and you know, I, I, to me, it is important to recognize that we are all going to have different ideas or opinions or thoughts. However, what we feel is common, common ground. The fact of the matter is there's nothing you have felt that I haven't felt, and there's nothing I have felt that you haven't felt. And so if we can just start to build some common ground on the feeling of it, I mean, right now, to even start a conversation you know, maybe the first thing that I just say to you is I've been feeling really sad since hearing about these horrible killings. And and we keep it there for for a little bit. And and I think if there is a space to be able to talk about whether you're feeling sad about it, angry about it, scared about what's going to happen, um, 
I, I don't know that anyone would disagree or, or could discount any of those emotions. Um, so at least we're, we're, we're building a platform where we're starting off with a shared perspective on just our feelings. In other words, you're saying, and obviously you're a psychiatrist, we're not going to have a political discussion initially. We need to be able to talk to each other really on the gut level about how it makes us feel. And if we start with that, I, our feelings are probably... I do. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really strongly about that. I mean, even if we take this um, terrible uh, incident out for just one second, I mean, if we just talk about feelings in general as a psychiatrist, and you, you can appreciate this too as, as uh, in the work that you do, um, I think sometimes what we, what I notice patients doing and people doing, and, and I've certainly done in the, as well, is, you know, when, when we've gone through feeling difficult emotions, all the, the, the feelings that we, we think of, sadness and anger and shame and blame and all of that, um, the next time we feel something close to that, it's like we let ourselves feel just enough and then we pull back, right? I mean, it's like if you've ever burnt your hand on a stove, the next time you're going towards something that's hot, you, you feel just enough of it and you say, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. And I think that's how emotions are too. We're so quick to pick ourselves up or distract ourselves or, or, you know, not go there. But the fact is when you don't feel things completely, you anchor yourself. And when I say anchor yourself, I mean that at some point it's going to come out and these feelings that are going to come out are going to be even stronger than whatever it is in that moment that's causing you to feel the certain feeling that you're having. So I, I think it's just really important for us to advocate and those of us who work with people in terms of their emotional well-being, to be able to say, let's just first feel it. Feel it completely. Before you, you, you move on from I'm feeling sad, let's talk about that. Uh, before you move on from feeling angry and say, but I know that there are. Before you have the but, let's just feel it completely. And, and the, you know, when you have something like this happen, the truth is our reactions are so strong. Our reactions to what, what's going on right now is so strong. Um, and, and there's reasons for that. You know, why are we also saddened by what's going on. Well, part of the reason we're so sad by it is this happened to normal people doing normal things. Um, people at fairs and people at shopping and, you know, and, and we need to kind of be able to, to relate to each other and say, it's, it's sad for me because this, this is my, my fellow man. This could happen and this could happen to me as well. So uh, you're right. I think uh, and before we can even get to the ideas that I hope will bring change about, we have to first acknowledge that we're all feeling the same things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's great. And I think obviously, uh, and I'm assuming also you've seen this in your own patients as well as just in your own life, friends and families, uh, these kinds of reactions. One of the things, I, I had a feeling that I, I guess I'll, I'll share with you, I, you know, this last mass shooting in, in Dayton, Ohio, and one of the representatives said that now, a Republican representative said he's changing his mind mm-hmm. and but will vote uh, for gun control and, and banning assault weapons mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, a couple of other things related to gun control. And the reason was because his, as this is a, something that I saw in the media, so I'm, I'm assuming this is true, but that his daughter mm-hmm. was across the street mm-hmm. from the shooting. And so then that... Yeah brought it all home. And I thought the sad thing about that was that did it have to come down to actually his daughter being, uh, you know, being in this kind in this situation because other people's daughters and sons have been in that situation and have been killed. And, and so there was, I had a lot of mixed feelings about that. Um, Right. Right. I I saw that this morning as well. And I, I had the exact same reaction that you did on one hand. I was so relieved that it, at least we were talking about feelings because, again, what he found was a common space of being terrified about this could happen to someone you love. 
On the other hand, I mean, if, if we don't generalize our sense of empathy um, and really kind of understand that when I say that this could be my daughter, it is someone's daughter. This is, this is happened. This has happened now to someone's daughter. Um, and, and I think, again, the reason why we don't do that as readily as we should is we just don't let ourselves go there. Um, you know, when you hear about these things happening in the news, it, it, there was a shooting last week, right? And you're talking about a food festival, and we've barely even felt that before people sort of move on, moved on in the news cycle to the next thing. And, and I think without being able to kind of generalize our empathy to really be able to sit and feel what it is that just happened, feel it, feel it completely and watch it, it's, it's hard to watch. It is hard to watch. But I think if, if you are too quick to change the channel, literally and figuratively, then, then you're not doing their um, tra- tragedy, the, the service it deserves, and then you're not getting out of it what you need to get out of it because we need to feel it completely. I agree with you. What do we do with our children? We're sitting there and we are watching it. We don't want to turn off the channel or, you know, stop looking at mm-hmm. our iPads because we do want to be able to mm-hmm. feel it and see the information. But you've got your kids around you. How do we, what do we do with the kids? How much information do we let them see or process or what do we do? Do you know, yesterday, Catherine, I had in the course of my day in my office yesterday seeing patients, um, I had several children who wanted to talk about this, but here in our our county where I am in Georgia, it was the first day of school as well. And all this was going on. And one of the kids that I see in my practice, he, he had to call his mom from school and had to come pick him, pick him up because his anxiety was so high um, because he was, he was hearing about this and it was triggering his own anxiety. So, so I, I think we have to find a way to talk to children and to, to start that conversation. I think we have to first ask kids what they know. Um, you know, asking them open-ended questions and say, tell me, what, what did you hear today? Tell me, where did you hear it from? What were, um, and, and if you can ask them first what they've heard, we can start with that. You know, a lot of times we don't want to um, say too much, or, and it's certainly not right to say too little, but ask them first what they even know. So I, I would say to parents, that's the first thing. And then when it comes to what do you know and where did you hear it, let's really think about where they're getting, what's the source of their information. And so... Yes, media is really important for us as adults to to gain a perspective or or get the news or understand what's going on. I think when you have children around, though, you have to be much more uh, limited in the ways that that you look at the media um, sources that are out there because you want to be their source of information, not someone else. As much as possible, you want to be their resource. Uh, And when it comes to you being that resource, my encouragement to patients is be concise, um, be specific, and be age appropriate. Uh, definitely don't be vague. Uh, you know, our own, our own discomfort with having these discussions sometimes means that we, the words that come out of our mouth really are rather vague. And uh, anyone who's worked with children will tell you, kids will fill in the blanks. They'll fill in the story that, that you didn't go to, but then they'll do it the only way they know how. Um, and they'll do it in, with their, from their perspective. And, you know, our intentions are important, certainly with, with our kids, but their interpretations are much more important. So being able to really give them enough information in an age-appropriate way, uh, I think, is really important. And not just what we say. I mean, when, when we're having discussions, these tough discussions with kids, certainly it is the verbal reassurances that we give kids, but it's also the non-verbal reassurances. Um, you know, being able to hug them, being able to make eye-to-eye contact. You know, we need to put our phones aside when we're talking to kids um, and, and being able to truly be present there with them 
gives them a source of, of reassurance just in that gesture that we do, checking in with them after you've had that conversation, even a day later, two days later, a week later. Um, those, those are some of the ways in which we can definitely um, help kids get through this. And, and I think there are some messages that kids um, can get through something as difficult as this that will be really valuable for them going forward in life as well. This is an opportunity as much as it is a dilemma um, and, and it's a sad incident that's, that's happened. It's also an opportunity to help kids understand many life lessons. Um, perhaps one of the most important is that we can't control everything. Um, there are things we can control and there are things we can't control. So when it comes to things we can control, let me talk with you about, you know, how we come up with a safety plan and what does that look like? And if you're separated from me, what does that look like? But then you can't make a guarantee to, to a child because there are factors you can't control. And, and well, well when you say you can't control, well. I'm going to stop you there because kids spend most of, the, at least from six years old on, they spend the whole day away from you. They're at school. They're with teachers who have, I yeah. guess, varying uh, degrees of information about what happens and how they're going to teach. I talk about it with their kids, I guess. And then they're out on, you know, they're with their friends and they talk amongst their, right? Uh, their, right? With, and so... Um, it's, I mean, at first I'm thinking about parents and teachers and some kind of coordination with the schools in terms of what kind of information the kids get. Some are going to be a lot more sophisticated than others. Uh, it's something that would seem to me that really has to be directly addressed with our school systems now. I mean, it's, you know, the... Completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, as, as responsible adults and people who care about these kids we have to make sure that we are coordinated and we are giving them a, a message that sounds the same no matter what the adult source is. Uh, if we're giving mix, mixed messages throughout all of this, a child uh, does not know what to believe or they'll pick up on the one piece of information they got that actually fuels their anxiety even more. So uh, it, it requires a, a coordinated effect, and I think that coordinated effect, again, uh, is on all different levels, um, certainly within the schools, being able to um, talk to teachers as a group, being able to talk between teachers and parents as a group, I think is, is really crucial. Um, I know in my own community when things happen, whether it is uh, a, a horrible uh, incident like what we just what we're going through, or whether it's a one-on-one, some a child within the school who's committed suicide, um, I appreciate the fact that the schools reach out, for example, to me, uh, and they do ask me to come in and to talk to the teachers about how to talk to the kids or you know, even to meet with the parents uh, and have a parent group meeting and kind of walk them through how to talk and, and just to help them walk through their own emotions. Uh, have you had any experience kids with the kids to talking to you or parents talking to you about uh, the uh, the rhetoric of our president? The the the, the, the what yeah, I'm calling it rhetoric, but it's uh, because they yeah. watch the president of the United States on television or on the internet or on their iPads, and they get this right. Yeah. So what is, tell me, what, what right, kind right. of reaction? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's really, um, it's a, it's a tightrope that I feel like so many of us feel like we have to walk when, when we're trying to explain the words and actions of our leaders, right? I mean, the, the bottom line is that leaders by just the nature of their position are, are resources for kids to look up to and learn from. And right now, many, many leaders are certainly not creating the example that we want our kids to, to take away and, 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 and emulate. 
So I do have kids who bring this up. I have kids who, when we talk about bullying, for example, bullying is something that so many children, myself included, I talk about this in, in the book in a moment of insight. Um, you know, when you're an anxious temperament child, you're already struggling with, with feeling good enough. Uh, you just want to fit in. You just want to belong. You want to know that if you're accepted, you, you somehow think that that validates, you know, your worth. And then you're bullied. Um, the, the experience of that means that kids walk away from it getting, they think the message that sure enough, they're not good enough. See, someone, someone saw through them and saw something that was defective about them and then, you know, brought it out and it, and you don't belong. You, you are, uh, you are not a part of their, their group and a part of their camp. Therefore, you must not deserve to be. All of that right now is so heightened for the kids that I see. Um, when, when it's so clear when they listen to, um, our president, our leaders, that there are two very distinct sides. And, and are you on the right side or the wrong side? Because right now it, it's, it's being thrown out there that there is a right and a wrong instead of there just being two different ways of looking at things. There's a right way and a wrong way, and that's what's being put out there. And so it's it's very difficult to counsel children on their sense of value and worth that isn't from external sources, how to handle bullies, how, you know, how to accept other people um, when they're not seeing that. It's very real. In your book, you also talk about in a moment of insight, um, you say it's, it's you know, maybe I mentioned this in the beginning, it's frustrating to link the cause of mass shootings to a mental health issue. Can you talk about that yeah. for us? What, you know, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that I talked about way in the very beginning of the book is, um, you know, at, with, as someone who's had the privilege of sitting with people in their most difficult times, right? No one comes to these psychiatrists because their things are going great in their lives. They come to see me because they're going through something. They've been feeling something um, that, that really they feel is shameful. And, and so one of the very first topics we deal with and, in my sessions is let's talk about the shame that you might be feeling right now. Uh, shame can be for um, what, what you've gone through. Shame can be for um, just being, having to see a psychiatrist. That could be the shame you're walking in with. Shame could be all kinds of things. And, and part of what uh, is, is the burden of shame for people who come to see me is the stigma of mental health. Um, and, and just saying mental illness um, conjures up all kinds of feelings and thoughts that people have about what they think that means, what they think it looks like to, to be a depressed person. And, you know, who really is a person who has panic attacks? That could that could never be me. That must be someone else. So, so when we then have something like this happen, a, a mass shooting, someone who's gone and killed people, um, and, and the word mental illness is also pulled into that. You know, when, when our president says mental illness pulled the trigger, um, mental illness did not pull a trigger. A deranged, hateful, evil person pulled a trigger. Um, mental illness, we have to really distinguish, we have to make it really clear that the very large number and the percentage of people who have what we would call a mental illness are certainly not violent. And they're absolutely not killers. In fact, people who suffer from a mental condition or mental illness are actually more likely to be victims than perpetrators of violent crimes. Um, people even with severe mental illness, uh, while they may have an increased risk of, of being violent, um, the risk isn't really that high. And there's other things that, that have a much greater risk for violence. Uh, substance abuse is a greater risk factor, for example. Um, and, and the bigger risk factor for someone with a mental illness having a gun in their hands is not that they're going to kill someone else. It's suicide. It's that they're going to hurt themselves. 
So when, when, when I hear in the media about, you know, we, this is a mental health issue, clearly we, we, we've got a mental health system that needs to be fixed. It is broken in so many ways. There isn't enough access. You know, there isn't enough access to good providers. Um, there isn't parity across the board in terms of the quality of, of, of care when it comes to, to access, and that, a lot of that has to do with demographics. Clearly, clearly we need to be having that discussion, and that needs to happen. However, when you say that mental illness pulled a trigger, you're perpetuating the stigma among people who think that it could never happen to them, and you're burdening the shame for people who do have a, a, a mental health condition. Um, and so I think changing this discussion means we have to use a different set of vocabulary for when we're talking about a mass shooter versus when we're talking about our neighbors or ourselves um, who have gone through things, and we're, we're striving to be more emotionally well. Um, if I walked into a room and I said to the room full of people, who here has a mental illness, even if you did, you probably wouldn't raise your hand. But if I walk into a room and I said, who here can relate to being trying to be more emotionally well? Who wants to be more emotionally strong or fit? I think most of us would raise our hands. So we've just got to really think about this vocabulary that we're using because whether, whether people use it purposefully to do this or indirectly and don't even realize they're doing this, when you clump it all together, you're saying to people, if you have a mental illness, you could do this or this could happen, um, you know, because, because you made it happen. And, yeah. and that well, I think, cannot be allowed. I think we've gone full circle in the conversation. That's exactly what you're talking about, changing the conversation. We have to be very specific. We have to, we, we can't, as you say, just putting it all together that crazy people, the people are people who are mentally ill are the ones who are doing the killing. You're saying people actually who are mentally ill are the victims and often are, and, and suicide is one of the biggest uh, factors involved in mental illness. We only have a couple, we have one minute left. Um, it's been <laughs> great talking to you today. I just want to mention the name of your book again, A Moment of Insight, Universal Please. Lessons Learned from a Psychiatrist's Couch. And uh, Dr. B. Suvrat, Bargarvi, MD, where do we get your book and uh, what websites can we go to to get more information about you and the book? Thank you for helping me spread the word. Yes, if, if, um, if people would like to get the book, they can certainly go to Amazon. It's available on Amazon uh, in Kindle, paperback, and hardback. It's also on Audible uh, for people who would rather listen to their books. And it is my own uh, voice doing the, the book as well. And that's been powerful uh, because I share in the book stories about patients who've gone through things, but I also share my own story. Again, if, if we want to have a conversation about reducing stigma and having uh, mental well-being, we have to be a part of the discussion. So I share my own experiences of having been an anxious child or a child who was bullied to simply say we all go through something. Um, I'm also on Facebook at a moment of insight and on Instagram on, is Dr. B moment. But uh, the book is available on Amazon and on Audible. And again, it's called A Moment of Insight. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great show. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 